Well, welcome everyone. My name is Bill Combs, and this is uh, 1 Corinthians, kind of subtitled Life in the Local Church. And you should have a handout there that has a few pages with it. And, uh, and let's uh, get started. I'll probably get, try to give a title to what we're doing each week. This week I titled this one, The Church That No One Claims. I say that because, uh, you know, you heard of Berean Baptist Church. A lot of Bereans, because in Acts 17, you know, Paul, Luke says there that they were more noble. The Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they compared Scripture with what Paul was saying and everything. But you don't find too many Corinthian Baptist churches. <laughs> but there is one in Hazel Park. There is, there is there. I know I looked on the internet and I was surprised there are some. There is one? Corinthian Baptist Church. Corinth. Well, there is a Corinth, Mississippi, so there's a Corinth, Corinth, you know, that, that. But why would you name your church the Corinthian Baptist Church? I was wondering if it was because of the gifts or something, maybe. You want to say we got the gifts or something? I don't know. Well, today we're looking at uh, the introduction here, primarily, and we'll try to get into the text a little bit as we have time. Uh, We're looking, first of all, at the authorship, and of course the first verse tells us that the Apostle Paul wrote this epistle. Um, He wrote 13 of the books of the New Testament, at least 13 that have his name on it, and this one is the fourth one. So Galatians was probably the first, written around AD 49 after his first missionary journey. And then First and Second Thessalonians were written from Corinth on his second missionary journey. As we'll see, he founded the church at Corinth, we'll come to that in a moment, on his second missionary journey. And then uh, when he went to Ephesus after Corinth on his third missionary journey, he wrote uh, 1 Corinthians around A.D. 55, some would say 54. We don't know the exact dates here, but we know pretty close because in Acts chapter 18, Paul comes to Corinth. And the latter part of that chapter, Paul is brought before a proconsul, the governor of the province of the Corinth is in, the province of Achaia. And that man's name is Gallio. And he is a well-known man in Roman history. We know a lot about that man. And we know exactly when he became proconsul, July AD 51. So we think that Paul had come already to Corinth at about AD 50, and in 51, when the fall of AD 50, 51, when they got a new proconsul, they brought Paul before him. So we've got a pretty good date there, at least when Paul was at Corinth and when he established the church. And from that, you kind of figure other dates, how long it took him to get here and there and so forth. And that's why we think about maybe uh, A.D. 55. We'll come to that. Let's talk about the city of Corinth. If we looked at a map today of uh, the Mediterranean world, we would see Greece is here. Uh Greece is here, and uh, we'll be talking about that. Here's Turkey, 
Uh, Paul spends a lot of time here because this is the province of Galatia, the province of Asia Minor. Here's North Africa here. Of course, here's Italy, Rome, and so forth. So Paul is around this area, Jerusalem, Antioch up here. He's in this area of uh, Galatia, Asia Minor, and so forth. He's in Greece. He's, so he's ultimately in Rome and so forth. And uh, so this is what it would look like in the ancient world. Uh, it's pretty the same area. And if we put some cities up here, uh, we can see uh, here's Jerusalem down here. Here's Antioch up here. So these are these blue lines indicate the Roman provinces, like the Roman province of Galatia here. And so here's Antioch, here's Jerusalem, here's Ephesus. This is this blue line here is the province of Asia, and here is uh, here is uh, here is uh, Macedonia up here. Philippi is in the province of Macedonia, and Corinth down here is in the province of Achaia. Uh, that's the city of uh, Corinth. Um, right here, uh, as we can see, on what's almost an island, there's a narrow isthmus here that separates this mainland from this, what they call the Peloponnesus here. It's almost, it's a peninsula, uh, but just that narrow strip of land. Um, so... Uh, the location, I say here, the southern end of Greece is almost an island. This narrow isthmus averaging about four miles wide right here is what separates uh, this peninsula from the mainland. And on the southern end of this isthmus is Corinth. It sets at the foot of a 1,500-foot mountain. Now, here's the area. Here's this isthmus. These are other cities, suburbs of Corinth. Here's Corinth right here, uh, as we can see on our map here. There's Sincrea, Lechium, Ismia, Chroma. These are just little small cities around uh, this particular area. Um, so if we take a look back here, we can see there are two bodies of water. There's the Aegean over here, and then there's this little gulf that comes in here, the Corinthian Gulf. And uh, we can see those from this picture. Now we're looking from the top of a mountain. Here's Corinth down here. And we're looking out at Sincrea here, one port, which goes into the Aegean, and this Lechium, which is this other port. Here's a, here's a diagram of ancient Corinth, a little closer view. Here's this Acro-Corinth, this mountain that we'll see in a moment. The main city's down here. There's a road that leads up to the Corinthian Gulf, to Lechium here. There's a road that leads down to Sincrea, and Corinth is at the foot of this particular mountain. Uh, there's this mountain, this Acro-Corinth, 1,500-foot uh, mountain above the terrain here. And uh, these are the, we'll see some of these excavations of Corinth down here. Uh, so there's Corinth. I say here, uh, history, it's one of the oldest Greek cities. Homer called it wealthy Corinth. The Romans plundered and destroyed Corinth in 146 B.C. In 46 B.C., Julius Caesar had it rebuilt as a Roman colony. In 27, Augustus Caesar made Corinth the capital of the province of Achaia. 
So what happened was, uh, remember, Greece ruled the world in the year 300. Alexander the Great, about 300, had conquered the known world, conquered Israel, conquered the known Mediterranean world, all the way to India. India. But then the Romans began to rise. And in the second century B.C., they had a series of wars with Greece. And eventually they conquered Greece. The Romans took over Greece, conquered it, made it Roman Greece. And the city that led the opposition to the Romans was Corinth. So as an object lesson, the Romans just totally destroyed Corinth, tore it down, wiped it out pretty much completely in 146 B.C. So it was fairly empty for about 100 years. Then in 46 B.C., Julius Caesar, he establishes a new city there, the Roman Corinth, as a Roman colony. Roman, Romans uh, conquered various areas of their ancient world, and they would establish what they called Roman colonies. They were, I mean, when they conquered, they took over your land. You didn't, you didn't own the land anymore. They owned the land. And they could give the land to whoever they wanted to. And one of the things the Romans did was they had soldiers who were retiring. And they didn't want these soldiers who were retiring coming back into Rome, filling the city of Rome. So they would give them land in the provinces that had been conquered. Often the soldiers who had conquered Corinth would stay there. They would retire there. They'd be given a piece of land. And that would bring stability. Romans could control it with these ex-military people there. And they became Roman colonies. So they had the rights of citizenship of Romans. Only people who lived in the city of Rome had the rights of Roman citizenship or these Roman colonies, little cities throughout, like Philippi and like Corinth here. So uh, in 27 B.C., Augustus Caesar made Corinth the capital. So here's the province of Achaia. There's the provincial line, and down here is Corinth. There's Athens, but Athens is sort of on the decline. Athens was certainly important 500 B.C., the very center of Greek life and culture and everything, but it's declining now because now it's a commercial enterprise that's important, and Corinth has become the commercial center of uh, ancient Greece. So uh, there's Corinth. Uh, we're looking. We're we're looking here from the top of this Acro Corinth. We talk about that mountain. We're looking down at the Corinthian excavations here, and um, there here's the. There's, you know, modern city built all around it now, but there's still these ancient excavations here that you can see. This is what's left of ancient uh, Corinth right here, down this area. Here's what the city probably looked like. Here's the Temple of Apollo, and we'll see some columns from that. Um, when the Romans came in and destroyed Corinth, they didn't destroy the Temple of Apollo because the Romans worshipped the same gods as the Greeks. The Romans adopted the Greek gods. They had the same, they had different names sometimes, Jupiter instead of Zeus, but they had a, they worshipped Apollo. So they didn't destroy the temples. They've just been, they've just been, they, they, they're falling apart over time. So we'll see this road here, this Lechium road, this road, Roman road that leads to the north and leads up to the Gulf of Lechium, to the port of Lechium, to the Gulf of Corinth. We'll see this judgment seat. Remember Paul says, that we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the bema, the Greek word is bema, bema. Uh, and we'll see that there, that, that it still remains, the platform still remains. So there's all kinds of temples, 
At least 26 temples and places of worship have been uncovered in the ruins there. The Romans was built around a forum or an agora. The Greeks call it the agora, the marketplace, a piazza in Italy today, a flat place, you know, like that. That's the way they built their cities. So there's that temple of Apollo, what's left of it, and uh, built about 500 B.C., 500-some B.C., here is uh, the Corinthian excavations. Here's that Roman road. These are what's left of shops. There's a paved street. There's a mosaic. Here's some shops. Uh, Paul would have certainly walked down this road and seen these shops and so forth here. They would have had some sort of wooden or straw or dirt roof, some sort of roof built on that stone there. So uh, they're pretty dark inside. There's that uh, what's left of the platform where the governor would have. Where this is probably maybe where Paul was brought. We're not sure, but this is this is the platform that's left of this place called the judgment seat, the, the bema, the bema. Um. So, notice I say here next uh, commerce seat because of its location, Corinth was the center of commerce between the mainland and the southern peninsula. It also commanded the trade between Asia and Italy. Corinth had two ports, Lechium leading to Italy and Sincrea leading to Asia. So what happened in the ancient world, if you were here in Alexandria, you were in Egypt, and you wanted to travel to Rome, you just didn't start off across the Mediterranean here. They had no navigation aids. You didn't know. You could, you could start out here, and all of a sudden a storm comes up. The weather travels from west. Uh, from uh, west to east, so a storm could come up, and you you know, and that's what happened to the Apostle Paul. You know, he got into a storm and uh, was blown around for a couple weeks. So there was a lot of trade from Egypt because Rome got most of its wheat supply from Egypt, and so these people would sail up. They would ships would sail up here the coast. They would stop along here. They would travel around, and they didn't even like to travel around the tip here. So a lot of times what they would do is they would uh, travel up here and they would unload their cargo on larger ships and they would reload on another ship and just come right across here just to avoid going around there. So sometimes they would unload their cargo and bring it on uh, wagons across. We'll see how they did that. There's discussions that they would actually uh, move smaller boats and stuff across a road that they built there. So here it is. Here's this uh, what place we're talking about. They would come in here to this area Sincrea. They built a road across the isthmus here. Now that's that's showing a canal. Uh, the Emperor Nero <clears throat> in the 60s started building a canal there but didn't go anywhere. They did finish a canal and at the very end of the 19th century we'll see it. About 1893 they built a canal there. That's about four miles wide. Uh, four mile, this is uh, four miles long here, I should say, at this point, shortest point here. Um, here's some more excavation. So here's that Lechium Road that leads to the northern port of Lechium from Corinth. Um, I don't know if you can see here, but that's a little, that's a little ditch kind of thing for water to run right there. So you've got a little place to 
get water away. Um, here's the here's the Sincrea, and here's that Corinthian canal today that we were looking at there, that little dotted line. So um, people would come in and land here at Sincrea at the ancient port. Um, here's the canal today. It's uh, it's about 70 foot wide. From what I've read, it's not used that much today because it's so narrow. It's mostly used for tourists now, I've read, but uh, it's uh, there's no there's no locks in it. Have you been there? Oh yeah. Was it just tourist kind of stuff? I know. Nice tourist stuff. It's amazing. Yeah. It's tall, isn't it? It has to be because there's no locks in there, so it's just built at sea level in both areas there. Like that. I, th- I see Ron, Ron and Sue on the phone. <laughs> we were at the top. Well, Ron was up there taking the picture. Is that what it was? Okay. So here is this road that they built across the isthmus there where they would move cargo just because they didn't want to sail around. And so they have, you can see the ancient remains of this Diocles uh, uh, here, this road. So it runs, you can see it runs right close to the modern canal here. But this is what they built in ancient times to move to move cargo from one ship to another ship. So they wouldn't, just so they wouldn't have to sail around that dangerous point there. The Apostle Paul sailed around that point. He got blown south, you know, <laughs> and then he took off again. They got blown out of the Mediterranean. So it is kind of a. So there is the. Uh, what did they move it on? What's that? What did they move it on? They used, uh, apparently, uh, uh, trees or, or a roller bear, kind of a roll, you know, make make trees and just make logs, I should say, and, and just roll it right off the top of there. What we know, that's what the description is. That that's some that's big things. They would use wagons too to haul cargo, but they say that the discussion is that they they actually would take a small ship and just small boat and put it on those uh, logs and just roll it across there and keep the place. Like a lot of work to. So, what about the inhabitants of uh, Corinth? The population in Paul's day was quite cosmopolitan, with Roman colonists making up the majority. These would have been Roman soldiers who settled there with their families in the second century, and now their descendants are living there, and they have Roman citizenship because they're born from these descendants. They were other nationalities, native Greeks, of course, as well as a colony of Jews, we know. Now, it's hard to know how large these places were. This, the estimate, the best estimates I've seen in recent years, based upon looking at the land area, how many people you can fit in land and so forth, is about 100,000 for this entire, you might say, metropolitan area. Maybe 80,000 in Corinth and maybe 100,000. You can read some books. I've read books say 500,000. That's not, that's not really possible if you look at the land area there. There was no... Rome was the largest city probably at its peak of a million people. Alexandria was 
was maybe second, Antioch third. So Corinth wasn't probably no more than a hundred thousand. Some figures are pretty inflated there. Um, so it's the largest city in Roman Greece. So it is a very large city and very important city because all this commerce is going through there. All this Roman commerce is going there. What about culture? The city cultivated various arts and was famous for its pottery, brass, and architecture. So you find Corinthian brass objects even in Jerusalem. Supposedly the gates of the temple were made out of Corinthian Corinthian brass, the uh, Herod's temple, uh, bronze and brass. Every two years the Isthmian Games were held, probably observed in A.D. 51, which were second in attendance only in Spender on the Olympic Games. The Olympic Games were generally held every four years, every four years. But there were games here in Ismia, this little suburb here, and we believe they were held in 51. So we believe Paul was there in 51 when the games were held. And uh, there were no, uh, they didn't have any holiday inns or days inns back in those days. So the people who came had to live in tents. And there, one speculation is Paul might have gotten some, a job, you know, making tents or something like that. He's described as a leather worker, maybe a tent maker. We know that where he's from in Tarsus, the uh, the, uh, the the wool, the skin of those goats, uh, that woolly fabric was very uh, rain resistant, and they made tents out of it. And so, it could be that Paul was involved in something like that with Priscilla and Aquila. Remember, he comes there, we'll see, and he and he gets a job with them, working with them. So they had these games these uh, Isthmian games and uh, they were very well attended they happened every two years there's some remains if you go to Isthmia did you go to Isthmia? You didn't go to Isthmia. Uh, if you go there you can see some remains uh, at Isthmia this is uh, the temple of Poseidon so the god of the, under, god of the sea Poseidon uh, was the, the, uh, the patron god of the games and they had a temple, a large temple there to Poseidon there, but all we have is left is just some remains. Here's uh, what they believe is the starting line for the, some of the races they had. Uh, some people getting ready to take off there at the races. Yes, but that wouldn't be true because they would be only men. <laughs> only men were part of the Olympics. Well, this is not the Olympics, and that's the interesting thing. But the other one, yeah. only men were part of that too, right? Not at Ismia. <clears throat> oh, really? At Ismia, they actually had women because they had singing contests, and they had poetry contests at Ismia. Not the, you're right, in the Olympics, is only men. Those were just athletic. But they had added to this, that's what I've read, singing, poetry, and stuff like that. So this is the only place where women were allowed to participate in the Olympics. But most of it was running and that kind of thing, as you say. Um, one year, the Emperor Nero in the 60s came, and uh, <clears throat> when, when he came, they actually had four four cities had games, uh, Isthmia, Olympia, or four cities that had games alternating various years. And the year the Emperor Nero came, they put all the games uh, on the same year. So some of them got out of order that year. And when when Nero came, he won all the medals. 
He won all the. He won the first prize at every event. He won. He won the first prize. Now he didn't compete in every event because, but because he was the divine emperor, they figured he would have won if he would have competed. Right. <laughs> Now, in the history of the Olympic Games, they they've marked that that year out that he won all the. They call it the Unolympian because they don't they don't like that. You know, they, but they they were afraid. They so when he comes to Isthmia, you know, he wins everything. He, he went to all the various games and he won everything. Um, what about morals and religion? Corinth had a reputation as one of the most wicked cities of the Roman Empire. The chief deity was Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Her temple was located on the top of Acrocorinth and was the center of sacred prostitution. We know that sexual immorality abounded in Corinth. Um, so here's that mountain. Now the fortifications there are later on because this area was occupied by all kinds of groups, the Byzantines, the Turks, and so on. And when they conquered this area, they would build forts and fortifications. So that's not the temple up there. All that's left, apparently, they say, are just these ruins here of the uh, temple. Uh, if you go there, you'll go up to Acro Corinth. But anyway, that's that's supposedly all that's left there. But it was a wicked city. There was sacred prostitution. That is, you had sex with prostitutes there. I was going to bring a slide. Uh, not a bad. <laughs> <laughs> to show you how bad it was, there, there, there is a, there's a picture I've got of a pavement stone in Corinth where you walked on the pavement that advertises prostitutes on the pavement. So it was a very wicked city. We'll see that that's a problem because some people in Corinth were saying men should be allowed to go to the prostitutes, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we'll see. All right, let's talk about... Uh, Paul's contacts with the church, how the church was established, and how Paul uh, wrote his letters and so forth. Let's look at that. That's Roman numeral 3a. Paul established the church on his second missionary journey. This is Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 18. This is the fall of A.D. 50, spending about 18 months in Corinth. All right, so let's trace back here. We're talking about Paul's second missionary journey. Paul had had a first missionary journey in Acts 13 and 14. He had been in the province of Galatia, this area right here, just this area. These southern cities, Antioch, Iconium, Derbe, and Lystra, had been to Cyprus, too. That was Acts 13 and 14. And in Acts 15, there's the Jerusalem Council. At the end of Acts 15, Paul goes on a second missionary journey. And he takes Silas, remember Paul and Silas go on this second missionary journey. And so we're starting here in Acts 15, 41. Paul went throughout Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So Paul first travels north here through this area, strengthening the churches there. We don't really know anything about those churches. This is the area of Tarsus. And there's nothing in the book of Acts about... All it says is there are churches there, but it doesn't say how they were established or founded. We know after Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, he goes back to Tarsus, and he's there for a number of years until Barnabas comes and gets him and brings him back to Antioch. 
So apparently Paul did some evangelistic church planning work then, or somebody did because there are churches there, and Paul is now going back to strengthen them. So Paul comes uh, to Derby and then to Lystra. And this is where he comes back to Galatia here. We're in the province of Galatia. This is where he'd been on his first missionary journey. And there he picks up Timothy, this young man. So now you've got Paul and Silas and Timothy together on this second missionary journey. Uh, Paul and his companions, Silas and Timothy, traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia. That's this area of Galatia here. They were, so Paul is revisiting the cities that he has established on his first missionary journey, and he is carrying with him, he's carrying with him the, uh, the decree of the council. Remember the council, remember Paul had written, Paul wrote, Paul wrote Galatians in AD 49 after that first missionary journey. And after Paul visited this area, Jews came in and said, Paul, these Gentiles and these churches you've established, they, these Gentiles must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. And so Paul writes a letter to the Galatians in AD 49 after he gets back from that visit and says, no, you don't have to keep the law of Moses and you don't have to be circumcised to be justified and so forth. That's Galatians. And then in Acts 15, they have the council and they say, yes, Paul is right. Uh, Gentiles don't have to keep the law of Moses. And so Paul takes the takes that information back to Galatia now. He's written a letter, but now he says, listen, the folks in Jerusalem have we've, we've had a council and, and there, we have this agreement that Gentiles don't have to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised. So he's going back, giving them that information. So Paul uh, wants to go over to the province of Asia. He's in the province of Galatia. This is the province of Asia. And Ephesus is the capital of the province of Asia. So that's his plan, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. So his plan was, I'm going to Ephesus here, because that's the capital city. Paul went to the main city, you remember, and that's where he wanted to go. But no, he was not allowed to go. So he decides to go north up here to Bithynia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. So they were going to go... Not to Ephesus, but they were going to go up here to the north. But no, they were not permitted to go there. So, Acts 16, they passed through Mysia and went down to Troas. So here they are on the coast. They're in the province of Asia, but they're not at Ephesus, where they wanted to, where Paul wanted to be, where he's trying to go to. They come down here to the coast, to the port of Troas. And then in the dream, Paul gets that Macedonian call. Remember, he has a dream. Come over and help us in the Macedonia, over to the province of Macedonia. And so that's what they do. From Troas, we put to sea and sailed for Thamothrace, this island here. And then the next day, we went on to Neapolis. Neapolis is the port of Philippi, maybe 10 miles away or something. So you land there. Paul lands there in Acts chapter 16. And you remember his ministry in Acts chapter 16, that well-known chapter of the people who were converted, the demon-possessed woman, the Philippian jailer, and Lydia, and so forth, all that would happen there. And then uh, when they left, uh, they traveled to Philippi, I'm sorry, and then they left and they go into Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. 
and they have a ministry there in Acts chapter 17, but they get kicked out of Thessalonica, remember? And so they go to Berea, and uh, they have a ministry there. Uh, we talked about before, they receive the word of God, and, but Paul gets kicked out of there. Everywhere he goes, he, he gets kicked out of there. So he goes down to Athens. I drew it as uh, a, a sea voyage. The text doesn't say whether he traveled by land, whether he traveled by sea. It's not exactly clear, but maybe more likely by sea. We don't know. And he comes to Athens. And he has that uh, ministry in Athens. Remember, uh, on the Areopagus, Mars Hill, the King James says. And after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, Acts 18, 1. So he comes to Corinth. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. So what had happened was the emperor Claudius, in the year A.D. 49, now, this is about 50, A.D. 50, the fall of A.D. 50. So the year before, the Emperor Claudius had issued a decree for all Jews to leave Rome. Uh, one Jewish, one uh, Roman historian by the name of Suetonius, he says that the reason the Jews were kicked out of Rome was because they got into a big argument, big fights, about someone named Crestus. And most people think that's an argument about Christ. <clears throat> that is, there were Christians in Rome. You know, Paul writes to the Romans, but there are already Christians there. There were Christians from Rome on the day of Pentecost, remember? So it looks like the church at Rome probably started in the synagogue, and then there's this debate about the Messiah and Jesus and all that. Anyway, they get uh, they're, they're, the, uh, the Jews get kicked out of Rome. They're expelled. And so Priscilla and Aquila... They come to Corinth. And because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Maybe the Isthmian games we talked about, possibly. Every Sabbath, he reasoned the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews uh, that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own hands, heads. I am innocent from it. I'll go to the Gentiles. Remember, this is Paul's normal procedure to go to the synagogue first. Then Paul left the synagogue, went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, as entire household, believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Don't be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent. I'm with you, and no one's going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. So that's where we get that 18 months from. So Paul is there probably from the fall of A.D. 50 to the spring of A.D. 52. Probably leaves in the spring of A.D. 52. B, Paul sailed from Corinth in the spring of AD 52 with Priscilla and Aquila stopping briefly in Ephesus so it goes from Corinth he sails to Ephesus um, stopping briefly Paul then left Ephesus while he returned to Jerusalem left them in Ephesus while he returned to Jerusalem so 
they wanted him to stay, remember, there in Acts, and he said, no, i got to get to Jerusalem. So he left Priscilla and Aquila there, and Paul returned to uh, uh, Caesarea. He returns to Jerusalem, sailed to Caesarea, that's the port. He goes to Jerusalem, visits the church there, and then comes back to Antioch, his home base. That completes the second missionary journey. All right, then see here, Paul departed on his third missionary journey in A.D. 52-53. So Paul starts out again the same way as he did before on his second missionary journey. He leaves Antioch, he goes up and goes to the churches of Galatia again. And then, then he travels to Ephesus. This time he's allowed. Now, he's already been in Ephesus briefly. He left Priscilla and Aquila there. But now he comes to Ephesus. See here. He stayed there for three years, according to Acts 20.31, in the city of Ephesus. And remember, Paul has an extensive ministry there in the city of Ephesus. He has, he rents that place, the lecture hall of Tyrannus, you remember? And he has classes there. He has a little uh, Bible school seminary. It's actually it's the first Baptist seminary in Ephesus, really. It's, but anyway, so he has this. He has his school there, and many people think that that's where these other churches in Revelation were founded from. We know the church at Colossae came out of this because in Col- when Paul writes to Colossians, he says the church was established by Epaphras. So Paul is in Ephesus. He's converting people, people are being saved, people are being won, and they're going back to their cities probably. Paul may have visited some of those places, Philadelphia and other cities. Of those. So there's a bunch of cities here in, uh, in Asia Minor. Um, all right, let's look at page two. So Paul is in Ephesus. We're trying to get to 1 Corinthians here. Paul writes 1 Corinthians from Ephesus. But before he writes 1 Corinthians, he writes another letter. A previous letter, now lost, was written by Paul dealing with the church's responsibility towards its sinning brethren. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, I wrote to you in my letter, that is in his previous letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. So remember, Paul has been in Corinth. He's had some correspondence back and forth. um, And he had written them a previous letter, he says here. I wrote to you in a previous letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Um, And they're still doing it, as we'll see. I say this letter is not extant, that is, we don't have it. But its contents are summarized in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. We'll get there and we'll look at what he has to say in that particular place. Then word came to Paul at Ephesus from the house of Chloe. says, My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you, Paul writes. Probably from Apollos. He says in 1 Corinthians 16, And now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. Now, if you remember the, if you can remember Acts, Apollos had been at Corinth in Acts 18 in between Paul's second and third missionary journey. And uh, he went there and then he left 
and Paulus talked to Apollos. My point here is Paul is a talk to Apollos, talk to Apollos. He's had information from the house of Chloe, so he's gotten information about what's happening at the church at Corinth. Um, now for the matters you wrote about. They have also written a letter, as we'll see. So they've had correspondence back and forth. Paul wrote a letter to them that we don't have. They wrote a letter back, 1 Corinthians 7. And Paul is going to respond. Now for the matters you wrote about. Let's discuss these things you wrote about. We're going to talk about some of those. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and the Caiaphas arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you. So he's had visitors come from Corinth to Ephesus. So he's gotten information. He knows what's going on at the church at Corinth. I say here, 7, Paul then writes 1 Corinthians from Ephesus in about A.D. 55. About that time, Paul sent Timothy to Macedonia and then on to Corinth to assist in their problems, but was not sure whether Timothy would arrive before or after the church would receive 1 Corinthians. All right, let's uh, look at the letter some now, a little bit, at least the introduction here, so we have time. Uh, Paul often begins his letters with some sort of introduction, some introductory uh, statements before he gets into the main body. In 1 Corinthians, it occupies verses 1 through 9. The first three verses are a salutation or a greeting that we see in all of Paul's letters. All of Paul's letters generally have this, except when you get to kind of Galatians, he kind of plunges right in there. But uh, almost all of Paul's letters begin with a kind of a threefold salutation. That is, you have you have the name of the writer, Paul. Then you have the addresses, Paul writing to the Corinthians or the Thessalonians or the Romans or the Ephesians, whoever. And then we'll see some sort of greeting, like grace and peace we see with Paul's writings. Paul is following the style of other letters of that time. So if you, we have a lot of letters from that time, and they, they, they operate the same way. They'll say, uh, Paul to so-and-so, and then they'll say greetings. They, they don't say grace and peace. They have a Greek word that just means greetings. But Paul kind of modifies that, as we'll see. So verse 1, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. So uh, I say here, as we go through this letter, we'll find that the Corinthians are at odds with Paul, their founder. They're judging him, probably questioning his authority over them. And one source of his authority is the fact that he founded the church, he will say. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you don't have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. And another source, of course, is his apostleship. And he says here, his apostleship is by divine call. It's by the will of God. Um, Paul claimed equal authority with the twelve. Remember in Galatians he says, For God who is at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. So Paul calls himself two times the apostle to the Gentiles. And remember in Galatians it says, The other apostles, the twelve, they were going to be committed primarily to working among the Jews. Now, Peter gets out there some, but primarily it's to the Jews. Paul 
is specially chosen to be the apostle to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So he's asserting his authority over them right here. I'm called to be an apostle. Now, this is an important uh, idea, this idea of apostleship, um, because an apostle uh, in the New Testament has tremendous authority. The word apostle is not used much in secular Greek, apostolos. You don't see that. It's used a couple of times. The the New Testament gets its uh, emphasis from the Hebrew, shaliach. So, the Jews trans, uh, translated this word shaliach into Greek as apostolos. That's the thought that's in Paul's mind. It's in Jesus' mind when we talk about the apostles. Now, what was this shaliach? A shaliach is a uh, concept in Judaism where you can designate someone to be your representative. And this man has every bit of authority you have. It's, it's, it's like power of attorney, but even more. So you designate this person to be your shaliak. This shaliak can, uh, can, can, can get married in your name. He can contract a marriage in your name. He can get your daughter married. He can, he can contract, make a contract for a marriage. He can buy property in your name. He can do anything in your name. He has full authority. So that's the idea here. When Christ gave, chose these apostles, he gave them this absolute authority. But, you know, there aren't any apostles today, let me tell you. <laughs> no one, I know there are people who call themselves apostles of various churches, but they don't have this kind of apostolic authority. That is representatives of Jesus Christ. Uh, I say here on page three, uh, next, uh, under this, to his own name, Paul adds that of our brother Sosthenes. So he's one of Paul's companions who is well known to the Corinthians. And Paul does this about eight times. He joins his name to some companion, somebody that the audience will know, his readers will know. They, he's writing to them and he mentions another person. It doesn't mean this person helped write the letter. Uh, this is a very personal letter. Sosthenes is not further mentioned anywhere in Paul's writings of the New Testament, so we don't know that much about him. But he was apparently someone who was known to the Corinthians. Verse 2, Paul is writing to the church of God in Corinth and to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Now right at the beginning here, Paul, I say, disallows at the outset one of the Corinthians' tendencies to think too highly themselves because he's writing to the church of God in Corinth. Earlier when he wrote those Thessalonian epistles, he writes to the church in Thessalonica. He could write to the church in Corinth, but he doesn't. It's to the church of God, he wants to emphasize here, because the church belongs to God. It doesn't belong to them. Later he'll make that point in chapter 3, verse 9, when he says, We, Paul and Apollos, are co-workers in God's service. You are God's Feel you are God's building. Paul will use a couple of illustrations to explain the nature of the church. He'll talk about the church is like a building, the church is like a farm. But the point of this is possession. You are God's building. God owns you. God owns the building, and God owns the farm. You don't own it. You know He is the owner here, and so He wants to emphasize that even with this statement 
to the church that belongs to God in Corinth here. Now he says those Corinthians are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now this word sanctified means to set apart. This speaks of initial sanctification. Remember the the Bible talks about three phases of sanctification. A past sanctification when we're saved, we're set apart to God. And then there's a present progressive sanctification, a growth in holiness, right? Then there's a future sanctification when we'll be made perfect in holiness and so forth. He's talking about they have been sanctified, set apart in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. So the power of sin has been broken. Paul treats them as regenerate people. Now let's create some problems in our thinking here. Don't get too negative a view of the Corinthians. It's easy to think that this is a bunch of church, a church of a bunch of unsaved people, you know. But Paul is writing to these people as Christians, you remember. Now, later he'll say in 2 Corinthians, you know, uh, judge and see whether you're in the faith, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 13. So it's possible that some of these people are not saved. But that's the way it is in our church here. When our pastor gets up and preaches, he presumes that we're all, I mean, most of us. He presumes you know, there may be unsaved people who come, but he presumes we're all saved. We've all made we're all professors. We all profess faith, and so. But sometimes, you know, later on, we some people come to realize we've had people in our church who later on say, you know, I made a profession of faith when I was just a child, but it really didn't take, and I wasn't really regenerated, and so forth. So these Corinthians, they are. You know, as far as we know, they've, they've all made professions. They are He's treating them as Christians. But he realizes that, as we'll go through here, there may be some unsaved people around them. Now, he's, he's telling them, the point is, if you have been set apart, if you've been saved, regenerated, then you ought to be living like that. You ought to be, holiness is part of God's intention for us in saving us. As we'll see in this later a letter, Paul's, idea of holiness involves behavior that's missing at Corinth the problem with Corinth is that believers look more like Corinth than they do the holy people in Corinth there's more Corinth in them it looks like you know there's a problem here they're worldly they're carnal as we'll see at least a large number of them so that's a problem the last phrase in verse 2 together with all those everywhere who call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, is designated to remind the Corinthians that they are part of the larger body of Christ and thus cannot go off on a tangent and do their own thing. Now that's what they're prone to do. But he says, listen, what I say to you, I say to all the churches, you're part of the larger body of Christ. You just can't do your own thing. Together with all those everywhere, their Lord and our Lord. We have a common Lord. We're all one in Christ. You Corinthians can't go off on these paths that you're taking uh, independently. Finally, verse 3, the familiar uh, greeting, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We say this kind of sums up Paul's theological outlook. The total... The sum total of all God's activity towards his human creatures is found in the word grace. If we were going to try to find one word to sum up Paul's idea of salvation, it's grace, isn't it? Everything we have is through grace. 
and then he adds the Hebrew greeting. Normally, Jewish Christians greeted each other with shalom, or peace, or well-being. And we know that uh, one follows the other, doesn't it? Because we have grace of God has been given to us, Paul says in Romans, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God, don't we? So that grace brings us peace. Nothing is deserved. Nothing is earned. And the Corinthians have got to learn that. And we've got to learn that. Nothing is deserved and nothing is earned. Yes? Do we know why Paul chooses to refer to himself as Paul instead of Saul after he gets converted? We don't know exactly. We know that um, Paul, as a Roman citizen, got the name Paul when he was born. But as a Hebrew, he also had the name Saul. Both those names mean the same thing, and they sound similar. So what Jewish Christians did who uh, lived in the Gentile world, and especially those who were Roman citizens, that's pretty rare, Paul would have had a a threefold name, like um, uh, Gaius Julius Caesar. Remember, the Romans had those threefold uh, trinomia. Paulus is probably Paul's last cognomen, which is like like Bill. So Paul is like Bill. We would love to know that middle name. That's his nomen, like Gaius Julius. You know, we think of, we say Julius Caesar, but Julius is his last name. So the the, the family name is the middle name, Gaius Julius Caesar. Julius is the the family name, that middle name. Marcus Tullius Cicero. Tullius is the family name. We'd love to know Paul's family name because that would tell us a lot about his family. We'd have Roman records and all that kind of stuff. But we don't know. All we know is that cognomen or what we would think of as like Bill or something. But Paul had that name from birth, and it appears that when he was in the Jewish territories, he called himself Saul, or he was called Saul. And then as he moved out into the Gentile areas on that first missionary journey, when he goes to Galatia, Luke refers to him as Paul. So apparently he used the name Paul, as he does in his letters among Gentiles. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together today. Thank you for the epistle that we're going to be studying. Thank you for the salvation that we enjoy through Jesus Christ. We realize that nothing we have is deserved. We can earn none of it. It's all by your grace. Help us to appreciate your grace this week. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.